Previously on The Bookening. My name is Nathan Alberson, Mr. Jake Menzel, Brandon Chastine, and today we're going to talk about Pride and Prejudice. Historical setting. Britain is at war with France. Well, so here I am then a college pastor, right? You've got these girls that think they want to live the fantasy of a Jane Austen novel. And at that time, I approached her thinking that she was, like you said, this proto-feminist. Mark Twain said he would like to dig up Jane Austen and beat her over the skull with her own shin bone. What you have in Darcy is a man who is flawed. Elizabeth Bennett. A lot of people use her for girl power. So it's when she finally realizes that she could receive benefit of greater importance from someone else. Who would you tell your daughter to emulate? You're going to go to a desert island and learn from Elizabeth Bennet, or you're going to go to a desert island and learn from Jane. A gun to my head, Elizabeth. I think she would have gained and had the wisdom to yeah. teach my daughter discernment. Why Elizabeth would be a good tutor for my daughter is because Elizabeth comes to realize that Wickham's exist. Just one old question. One old just question. Okay. Uh, Lizzie and Jane, which one should your daughters want to be? I'm going to argue for Jane this time. Jane, because Jane has the maternal affection and patience and just natural warmth towards children. The gardener's children run towards Jane and not towards Elizabeth. She would be a good governess for young children. Maybe when they get to high school, you want them under Elizabeth. Yeah, I think that that's pretty fair. Jane has a much better chance of of raising emotionally healthy children that yeah. are confident and secure, and um, they may not have Elizabeth's critical capacity, but they'll it'll be made up for with strength and confidence, and just by virtue of growing up feeling loved. So you're arguing for Jane now? Well, uh, I see that I, I'm acknowledging the validity of arguing for Jane. How's that? Yeah. Jane would give room for a child who had abilities that were beyond her own, too. She would send an Elizabeth to to Lizzie or to the gardeners or to somebody who could yeah. who could perfect and improve their their gifts, and she would she would never be despised by. Maybe she would, but I can't imagine it being despised by Jane by any of her more bright or critical, yeah, Lizzie-ish children. How could they help but love and adore? She's not going to despise her children like Miss Bennett obviously despises Elizabeth. And Lizzie will be tempted to despise certain of her children, probably, especially the dumb ones. Like her father. Yeah, just like her dad. It's also true that by the end of the novel, Lizzie is considerably softer and uh, more understanding. And Jane is a little bit wiser, sadder, but wiser. (laughs) So they're both in a better position to be good parents. Absolutely. and And the other part of this is that neither of them are going to be raising their kids in isolation. They're going to be... Yeah, if we're going to play the the hypothetical game, it's one thing, but the kids in the actual novel have it made because they're going to get the best of both worlds. That's right. Lizzie's kids are going to get to go be with Aunt Jane, and they're going to adore her, and Jane's kids are going to get all the benefits of Lizzie's wisdom and experience. Yeah. So Mr. Bennett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the first time that I read the novel, Mr. Bennett was by far my favorite character simply because he had all the funny lines. And it was a real revelation for me to be reading a book where somebody said anything funny, where somebody could be that sarcastic, that sort of modern feeling. And it was what clinched the deal, just reading the first chapter. And Mr. Bennett yeah. says 
something. What is he, what's his funny line there? He says, um, where she says, Mr. Bennett, how can you abuse your own children in such a way? You take delight in vexing me. You have no compassion on my poor nerves. And then he says, you mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. Yeah. yeah. Right. So he's just, I remember that line specifically made me fall in love with the book because it was just a funny line and I wasn't expecting it in an old, boring book from the 18th century. So I really liked Mr. Bennett. However, reading it this time, I couldn't help but think dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Mr. Bennett's one of those characters that... um you know the your witty, cynical, nasty side really does does gravitate toward and appreciate. Um, but when you begin to actually look at who he is, I think there's no conclusion you can make except that he's just a monster. Yeah. He is the villain of of the book. He's responsible for all of the woes that the Bennett family faces at the end of the day. He's a horrible husband. He mocks his wife. He exposes her to the ridicule of her of children. Her own, that's exactly, that's the line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To the ridicule, ridicule of her own children. It's just a horrible, horrible thing for a man to do. And I think you might, well, make your point, but I think you might be going too far. Well, he's just a, you were making the point that he's, he's a monster. He's a, he exposes his wife. He exposes his children. He doesn't <clears throat> care. He's absent. And I think that as much as you want to be, uh, Sympathetic to you look at Mrs. Bennett and you think, well, she deserves everything that she gets, even from her own husband. And no woman deserves that kind of treatment from her husband. It's a scoundrel who treats his wife the way that he does. And, you know, maybe why it's difficult uh, for me to talk about is because I see enough of that sort of thing in myself that I know I have to despise it. Mm-hmm. And so I have to I have to see and despise uh, the Mr. Bennett and me at every turn. And if I find myself growing too sympathetic with him over the course of the book, it's because I'm growing too sympathetic with my own weakness or my own sinful tendencies. Because I'm the kind of person that would sit back and just mock everybody. Yeah, Yeah, but I think you have a number of scenes that do paint him in a sympathetic light. I mean, you've got the scene where she, she asks him whether she should marry Mr. Collins, and he's got that great response... Yeah, that's I mean, the maybe the greatest line in the book. So or you've one got of the greatest lines. For yeah, sure. I mean he's just he is likable. You know, I mean maybe he is a total scoundrel, but I don't know that he really comes off as all that hateful in the book. I don't know that I get the sense even that Jane Austen hates him necessarily. Not the same way that she hates Mrs. Bennet. Well, why do you say that? Because she gives him all the good lines, and he has a number of triumphant or fun moments in the book. I mean he's. There's something about when the author allows a character to be entertaining like that that mm-hmm. indicates a certain level of sympathy for them. I think that anytime you introduce a degree of sympathy into a villain, it makes him that much more of a real character and therefore that much more three-dimensional. And so... But no less, and yeah. more, more, More sympathetic and maybe more hateful. Because you see what he could be. He's not just the... Uh, an expression of pure evil incarnate, you know, he's, he's human. And yet he chooses to, to be as wicked as he is. Why do you think that Jane Austen seems to be, well, would you agree with me that Jane Austen seems to be a lot harder on Mrs. Bennett? 
Is that a fair thing to say? The easy answer is yes, right? But I'm not sure. She's hard on Mr. Bennett as well because Mr. Bennett is the whole responsibility of what happens is put on his shoulders. It's not Mrs. Bennett. Mrs. He could Bennett have, never gets lines yeah. of exposition explaining how terrible she is. But, but her she, flaws she doesn't need are them evident and obvious. You're pulling out your hair every time she comes on scene. Yeah, you're cringing just knowing that she's in the room and what's she going to say or what's she going to do next mm-hmm. to hurt Lizzie or to hurt Jane or to hurt... But where's the portion of the book where it describes how they married young and she ended up not living up to his expectations? And so she, you have yeah, to remember that, that Mrs. She Bennett... Was, um, she was happy and... You know, young, youthful, and gay, or something like yeah. that, and that covered up her empty-headedness, or something yeah, like the, that. The appearance of good. You sense have to. That... You have to keep in mind, and I don't. I think Jane Austen wants us to as well that this is years of living with a husband who despises and mocks and hates her, and so she has been made into a monster. She had never felt so strongly as now the disadvantages which must attend the children of so unsuitable a marriage, nor ever been so fully aware of the evils arising from so ill-judged a direction of talents, talents which, rightly used, might at least have preserved the respectability of his daughters, even if incapable of enlarging the mind of his wife. And that's not the only comment that makes it sound like, regardless of what Mr. Bennett does or does not do, Mrs. Bennett has an unenlargeable mind. Yeah, she says... She has a weak understanding and illiberal mind. This is one of these parts. Jane Austen is, this will be a little bit of an aside, but I think it might help. Um, she's, she's one of the pioneers of um, this form of narration where the author's perspective gets easily mixed up with the character's Character, perspective. Yeah. And so when you get to a point like this where she says weak understanding and illiberal mind, you have to wonder, is this the narrator telling us this or is she suddenly giving us Lizzie's Lizzie's or Mr. Bennett's perspective on what this mother is. Mm-hmm. Right. And that it, it matters which side you take, because if it's the author telling us she she's omniscient and she knows her characters and she's telling you something that's absolutely true about them. But if it's Lizzie or Mr. Bennett, then you have to say, well, this also comes from their prejudice, their disdain of their mother, who's been for years made an object of ridicule for Lizzie. And you have to know that Lizzie feels special because her father lets her in on these little in-jokes about her own mother. Mr. Bennett goes out of his way to cultivate that sort of thing with Lizzie. And, uh, you know, I think it's in that chapter, in that bit of exposition, she says that up until this point, she had always been sympathetic with her father because of his tender affection toward her. And then she realizes, you know his supposed tender affection toward her, letting her in on the joke and cultivating that in her was a continual breach of conjugal obligation or something like that, I think she calls it. And then she'd never seen how much of a disadvantage it put her at. It was actually harming her. And so she has that moment where she realizes, I think, or Jane explains to us, that she's realizing that his what she perceived to be love for her wasn't that or didn't produce any good outcome. And I think that if you think about it that way, 
you realize that Mr. Bennett's just a narcissist. What he loves in Lizzie is what he sees in Lizzie of himself. Mm-hmm. And so he cultivates a Lizzie in his own image. And, and that comes out, you know, toward the end of the book, you begin to see, you know, at the beginning of the book, Lizzie and her dad are always exchanging glances. They're always on the same page. And by the end of the book, they're not. And Mr. Bennett and Lizzie have differentiated. And you have these scenes where Mr. Bennett doesn't quite understand why Lizzie's not in on the joke or doesn't think the joke's funny, whether it's reading Mr. Collins' letter or whether it's talking about um, Darcy or Darcy's proposal. He's just caught off guard because he's out of sync with his daughter at that point. And uh, that's an important point for the development of Lizzie's character, the ability to separate herself from her father, to see her father's sins and weaknesses, and to say, I'm not going to be that kind of person. What do you think about Mr. Bennett's supposed repentance after the whole Lydia thing goes down? Oh, man, I, I, that to me is extremely painful um, because it seems very much to be an Esau-ish sort of repentance where he, uh, what's the thing that he keeps saying over and over, let me feel it, Yeah. let me feel it, it's going to pass soon enough anyway, I deserve to feel it for a little bit. That's the sense that I got from it, and so well, that's his typical cynical shtick. I don't know how much to yeah. base whether he's really repentant or not bet on him saying that. Well, and then we don't really get do we get in sort of the epilogue any signs of fruit of repentance and how he deals with Kitty or? Well, we know what he says to Kitty, and we could decide. And that he's that's mocking her the whole time he's saying it. Yeah, but that's what he does. It I is mean, what he does. He could be repentant, and it would look like that probably. <laughs> That's fair, I think. He could also just be mocking everyone and never really repenting. We know he at least feels bad about the Lydia situation. Yeah, and I think, you know, is it a is it a is it a worldly sorrow or is it a godly sorrow? Is it going to produce fruit and change? And he seems to think, to me, he seems to to know that it's not going to produce any change. It's going to pass soon. That's the that's the sense that I get from it. But I don't know. I I hope I'm wrong about it. Often repentance isn't as radical as it as it is for somebody like Paul, you know, mm-hmm. often repentance looks like baby steps and, and, you know, maybe, maybe he's starting to take baby steps and it doesn't look very sincere because he's never really been a very sincere person. Yeah, right. so you can't just, trust him to be sincere, but he says, no, Lizzie, let me once in my life feel how much I have been to blame. Mm-hmm. I am not afraid of being overpowered by the impression. It will pass away soon enough. It's that last phrase that that's the that's the part that brings the think, question in your mind. But right. here at the Kitty, to her very material advantage, spent the chief of her time with her two elder sisters, and then it says that she, uh, without Lydia's example, becomes less irritable, less ignorant, and less insipid, and so she receives the advantage of her older sisters. And you know that he has part to do with that because he won't let her go. Yeah, I think that's the strongest argument right there that yeah. that mm-hmm. Kitty improves. Yeah. Um. He learns from Lydia. Yeah, I mean, I think you could make a good argument that Mr. Bennett is a man that does appreciate good sense and has found himself in a situation where he never has any of it. Certainly, I would hate to be in his position. I, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it would, it would be to... He did make an awful mistake in marrying Mrs. Bennett. I mean, yeah, there is that he did. that yeah. that chapter that begins by describing, you know, saying how could Jane or Elizabeth have any idea what... What, what does it say? Conjugal felicity looks like given mm-hmm. given their parents, and then it describes Mr. Bennett. 
And, and, and Austin talks about, you know, Mr. Bennett could have dealt with his infelicitous marriage in other ways. Um, he chose and, to withdraw into books and into the country. And there seems to be some indication in Jane Austen's perspective that that is better than, for example, withdrawing into drink or fornication or, yeah. you know, Adultery. to a certain extent, yeah. he is a man who's doing the best. You know, I mean, he's not beating his wife. He's not being horrible. He's just being sarcastic and retreating into his library and being passive. Yeah, I agree. At the same time, you just have to, we have to see that kind of absenteeism as as abusive. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a denial of his manhood. He's a denial of responsibility for anybody or anything in his life. He's just a bitter, cynical old man who retreats into his books and lets his wife and daughters run amok and make a fool of him and everybody else. There's nothing he can do about it anyway. So he refuses to take any responsibility at all. Yeah, Mr. Bennett, he's not as foolish as, oh, what's her sister's name? Mrs. Bennett's sister. Phillips. Yeah, he's not as foolish as her husband. He was a man who could see the weaknesses of his wife and could have addressed them. But instead, he chose to be passive. He chose to That's withdraw right. into books. He chose to abdicate. And then it's it's purposeful that she has Mr. Gardner and Darcy be the ones who take the active role. Mm-hmm. in resolving the situation with Lydia and Wickham. Very They're, clearly, they are yeah. men. They are men. Her father is not. Yeah. And he's the ruins of what he should have been. And he could have addressed Mrs. Bennet. And she may have never made a wife he would be happy with, but he could have at least not become bitter and withdrawn and angry and cynical. And he could have provided for his kids. He could have had the means at his own disposal Austin makes it very clear that he makes it clear to Lizzie that he could have. And he chose to bank on the fact that he was eventually going to have a son. They're actually mixing up the the BBC version with uh, the book. In the book, it says he thought about it. In the movie, he actually says that to Lizzie. had an exchange with Lizzie. Just a small point. Yeah, I had it right at first, and then I think I recalled the scene from the movie. I hate when that happens. Yeah, well, we could maybe edit that part out. Thanks. Or leave it in. <laughs> we'll see. Well, anyway, the point is, we we come to realize later on that he, he actually had it within his means to provide substantially mm-hmm. for his daughters, and he chose to bank on having a son. Mm-hmm. And um, you want to you wanna think, on the one hand, that that's a forgivable sort of, sort of thing, but it's really not. You know, as a... As a a fool leaves no inheritance to his children, and mm-hmm. he had every every bit of power to leave a good inheritance and to provide for his daughters. And he had a responsibility, until he had a son, to make sure that he was doing everything in his power to save and provide and lay things up for her in the event that he didn't have a son. He was a fool. Yeah. And that sort of negligence and selfishness characterizes him throughout the course of the book. Yeah, and it explains what happens with Lydia because she has no father to tell her to quit being a fool, to keep her in the house. No, he thinks and the so, way he thinks the way for Lydia to learn her lesson is to go off and make a total fool of herself. And that is the most damning thing I yeah, think that he does. He sends her to her destruction when Elizabeth tries to warn him, and the way yeah. that he shrugs it off is just nasty. Yeah. And so then one of the questions that I like to think about is Lydia will become her mother. And so you know that her mother must have had an undisciplined father who had no active role in her life. And so 
Well, I guess the novel addresses this. Kitty could have become Lydia, too. And as soon as she has parents who care and take a role and have seen some repentance, then she changes, too. I think it's always interesting to remember that Kitty's actually older than Lydia Yeah. by two years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So Kitty's a weak, weak-minded person already. Yeah. But Kitty's a good example of the fact that a weak-minded person under good tutelage with good influence can turn out okay, at least. It's maybe even a, it helps damn Mr. Bennett in saying that Mrs. Bennett perhaps could have been okay with someone mm-hmm. to actually care about her a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, had he cared at all for Mrs. Bennett, it could have been a very different marriage. Well, she just, she's flailing around constantly... Whoring for attention. Why? Why does a woman, a grown woman, flail around whoring for attention? She doesn't have the attention of her husband. She doesn't have the care and love and affection, the security of being and feeling loved by her husband. She. It's impossible for her not to be a different woman if Mr. Bennett isn't the least bit affectionate toward her and cares for her, is sympathetic toward her. But all she gets is his scorn. And she's too foolish small-minded to see and understand his scorn, but she sure feels it, and it comes out in everything that she does. Mm -hmm. I think she was always going to be... I guess we can move into talking about Mrs. Bennett, too, a little bit. I think Mrs. Bennett is always going to be small-minded. No doubt. And one thing about Jane is that she's not politically correct in that way. Some people are just dumb. Some people are just not thoughtful. Some people are just unwise. But she could have been useful and happy in her own small way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she obviously likes to be hospitable and have people in her home. She could have been someone who was a joy to her community, you know, hosting parties, being she could have lively, been, yeah. and, but she had no husband to tame her. To tell her when to keep her mouth shut. Yeah, there's some controversy for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, what do we think about uh, Mrs. Bennett? We've, we've cast her in a kind of sympathetic light as we've approached her through thinking about Mr. Bennett, and yet she is just nails on a chalkboard every yeah. single time that she shows up yeah. in the book. It's just to be obnoxious. It's so painful. She's one of those characters that I always think of, you know, L.P. Hartley? There's a British author that wrote, that ends up showing up in a lot of like little horror anthologies and stuff. Um, and his famous story, I think it's called uh, W.S. And it's about an author who starts getting letters from a mysterious source, and then and then the the evil guy that's been writing these threatening letters shows up, and it turns out to be a character from his book that's come alive, and it's the villain that he wrote. And the villain came alive. The idea is that this this fictional character is mad at his creator for not imbuing him with any positive qualities. You know, he just said, you, he, the, he ends up telling him, you took everything that you hated and you put it into me. And, uh, you know, he says, if you can name one sympathetic thing that you did for me, then I won't kill you. And the guy can't. And spoiler alert for anyone that was going to read W.S. by L.P. Hartley. <laughs> Uh, he ends up dead, killed by his own creation. Uh, and I always think of that with characters like Mrs. Bennett, where it seems like the author of the book, the creator, the god of the world, has such a chip on their shoulder against this character mm-hmm. that I almost end up feeling bad for the fictional character. Yeah, I mean, they're really, 
Jane Austen, obviously, not to not to read too much into it, she must have had somebody like somebody that. like that that she just that she despised. despised. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When the closest you can come to to creating sympathy for Mrs. Bennet or for a character is to say, well, in in fairness, her husband was an idiot. Not that it would have changed anything if he wasn't. <laughs> which yeah. is about which is about all that that Austen gives Mrs. Bennet. I was just sitting here thinking, and I, I wonder if this holds true. I'd like to be able to say it definitively, but I wouldn't be surprised to go back through the novel and look at all of the the very painful Mrs. Bennet scenes and to see that they were always followed by some of Jane's best jokes, um, some of Jane's most funny moments. Because Jane what, Austen? Jane Austen's. Because what Mrs. Bennet always does is create so much tension. In you as a reader, it's such a, it's so painful. It's so, it just builds and builds and builds whenever Mrs. Bennett's let loose in a scene that that's the perfect setup for something hilarious like Mary to show up and say some idiotic yeah. thing. Well, there are, there were times reading it, I don't remember whether this bothered, it bothered me as much last time, but <clears throat> there were times where I was tempted to skip or I did just like skip a paragraph down because Mrs. Bennett was driving me nuts. Uh, it reminded me of like I don't like those shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm or The Office where it's just awkwardness and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be funny and you're supposed to I can't detach myself that much from it. Yeah. Um, I, I had much more trouble reading this the second time through because I came to the first time pretty empty handed except well you heard the baggage check earlier, so, so I had my own prejudice about it, but I, I didn't have much knowledge of the plot, much expectation for the characters coming in. So the first time through, I read through it, you know, just devoured it. But the second time through, knowing, anticipating those scenes, I'd put the book down for days at a time mm-hmm. because oh, those scenes were just going to be so painful. Like that final ball at, is it at Netherfeld? Yeah, the, that final ball. The one where the whole family I think is I just... went like two a week or two before I finally picked it up and plowed through that hmm. scene. And the same thing with when Lizzie gets to uh, Rosings, or Rosings, or however you say it, when she goes to uh, visit Mr. Collins in Caroline, I, I had to wait there too because Collins is painful and then the whole Darcy conflict scene was going to happen. And, yeah. and then when she went to Pemberley, you know. But then I always found when I actually got through it that the most of those scenes ended with, something funny or lighthearted that really resolved tension. The Mr. Collins stuff, to me, he's enough of a buffoon that it's, it was funny. But Mrs. Bennett, this time through, and especially that final scene where the whole family just makes an absolute fool of, of all of themselves at that party, mm. that was hard for me to get through. Hmm. Yeah, there's. I, can, I can't think of any scene in the book where you're supposed to sympathize with Mrs. Bennet. No, that's one of the reasons that makes me think that perhaps we are supposed to sympathize with Mr. Bennet and that she's not at least intending to make him a monster because when she wants to make someone a monster, she's she can do it. entirely capable of just mercilessly creating someone who is just one-dimensional. What do you think Mrs. Bennet is pretty one-dimensional? I think we understand where she comes from and we understand who she is. I'd say she's one-dimensional, but only in the sense that I know people that are one-dimensional yeah, like that's, that. Yeah, that's she, what I would say. Is she's not unrealistic. There are people, like you were saying, she's not PC in this sense, that she's willing to point out that there are one-dimensional people. And they are awful to be around. 
or can be. I don't think not finding any sympathy for Mrs. Bennett makes her a cartoon. I think that she's a very real character. I, I think know. we've all known people more yeah. or less like Mrs. Bennett. I, yeah, I can think of a handful. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have a name in my head right now. I'm sure you guys do, too. On the count yep. of three. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not a cartoon. Do you think that the author of a book like this has any responsibility to create any sympathy? Do you think that uh, the way that Jane portrays her is is okay? Is there an argument to be made against the way that Jane portrays her? Or are we okay? I'm basically okay with it, but I open the floor for that discussion. I think I'm okay with it. In, in specific cases, but I, I always find that what I appreciate most in an author is the ability to find something sympathetic in in any of in all each of her characters, especially the ones she's most critical of. So you know I, I read Mark Twain. Mark Twain's probably going to be a constant whipping boy for me. But I, I read Mark Twain when I was in middle school, sixth grade, or something like seventh grade. Read Tom and Huck and and really resonated with with Twain and felt good about myself for being in on the joke about how stupid everybody in the world is. And um, at a certain point, that, that gets old and tired and lame. I think it does, but the argument that I would make in Jane Austen's case at least is that she does have a moral sense that Mark Twain doesn't. I think it's no because doubt. she's a good Christian. Well, she certainly she she certainly judges all of her characters. Mm-hmm. She does judge her characters, but I I think what she's doing is she's saying that there really are I mean, she's just she's just taking the book of Proverbs and she's She's illustrating it. She's she's putting flesh on those bones, basically, and saying there are fools, there are wise people, there are people that are total fools, and there are people that are pretty wise, and yeah. here's the difference. And it's a real quantifiable difference, and it can make for a horrible mess when mm-hmm. someone's a fool, yeah. and it can make for something very joyful when someone's wise, and she's she's parsing that way, and yeah. um, she's doing she's doing moral work. Yeah, yeah you, I agree with that. you can get a sense when a novelist is forcing their characters to be a certain way versus when a novelist has created these characters. They just have these characters. Yeah, and they just live. And, they, and, the, and the novelist gives them plenty of room to make you sympathize with them. And so you have these scenes you pointed out where you can sympathize with Mr. Bennett. There are even scenes where you can sympathize with Collins, where you can sympathize mm. with um, Wickham. Lydia. And Lydia. But I can't think of any scenes where you can sympathize with Mrs. Bennett, and I don't get the sense that that's because Jane Austen wasn't willing to let there be a scene, but that there just is very little to sympathize with. I think that that idea of creating a character, letting the character live and breathe and be themselves is an important one, because what you don't ever feel with Mrs. Bennett is that she's out of character, that this is forced, that Jane's trying to make a point here. And she's doing something unnatural with the, you know who Mrs. Bennett is, you know basically what she's going to do or say, and she doesn't disappoint you. She is who Jane created her to be. What about the other characters that are the fools, the bad characters? We've got Lydia. Lydia, let's talk about Lydia. All right. Is there anything, Brandon, that you find sympathetic in Lydia? Similar to Mrs. Bennett, I find sympathetic that she has, she doesn't have the attention of her father, mm-hmm. and that he obviously 
I'm not sure the word despise is correct with her. I think he despises Mrs. Bennett. Mm-hmm. But I think he doesn't care what happens to her. Um, he doesn't care to see her develop her character grates on him. And um, so, yeah, she's she's young and she's foolish. I know a lot of young, foolish girls. She's young and foolish and untended, uncared yeah. for, uncultivated. And she's looking for the attention of men. And she's 15, yeah. right? Is that right? Or is she, she, is she not 15? Is she 14? No, I think she's 15, which I think is the most important thing to remember about her. Because you, you imagine her, at least I imagine her as being older, simply because she's always older in the movie versions. She's always, I mean, everybody just looks like they're 20 in any movie version <clears throat> I've seen of this. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, when she, when you think about the fact that she's actually fifteen, that makes a huge difference. I think because she's just a stupid fifteen-year-old. I yeah. was a stupid fifteen-year-old. Everybody's a stupid. 15 Everybody's year a stupid fifteen-year-old, <laughs> and I think she's fairly sympathetic in that. What you said, her her daddy issues are so obvious. Yeah. I mean, she's just like begging for somebody to pay attention love to me, her. Love me, love me, love me, love me. Everywhere yeah. she turns, Wickham pays attention to her. That's it. And she runs away with him. And anybody, it's very yeah. clear, anybody that pays attention. To, the most yeah. favored soldier in her eyes is the one who's paying attention to her in, a, in the moment. Yeah. And it's so damning for a father. Yeah. To not step in and stop this. And then she has her mother who's encouraging it all. She's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and there's... It's what what you said the other day is that, you know, at 15, she's so young. She's so impressed. Her, her character is not formed or set. It's just being, you know, she's she's blossoming. Mm-hmm. It, it does make her the really tragic character of the book because that she 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 had an opportunity. There was a way that she could have not become terrible. Yeah, because Elizabeth and Jane didn't, and and which, Kitty seems to have avoided it too. So, which does make you wonder how the whole history of Mister and Missus Bennett developed. In relation to their children, I've got a theory. My theory about that is is that, and this this is nothing in the novel. Just I, I've, I've I've thought about. I think maybe Jake asked me off mic why, because there is a world outside this podcast where we talk. All we do is talk about Jane Austen's Pride <laughs> and Prejudice. <laughs> well, I'll open up the floor to you guys. Jane and Lizzie both turned out pretty good. Yeah, even at the beginning, before they've had their bilsing. Draman, what's that word for uh... buildings Roman? Buildings Roman, <laughs> buildings Roman, I guess. <laughs> buildings Roman. But even before Jane and Lizzie have learned what they learned through the course of the novel, they they're still a lot smarter and have it to put together, and they still seem to have moral sense. I guess the question is, where on earth did these two come from? There's this clear dividing line between them being wise and their three younger sister being morons. You have a theory already. I do have a theory already, but uh, well, probably th- your theory will be the same as my theory i think i can only repeat nathan's theory what his theory is my theory would be that their father wasn't as distant yeah that's my theory i think the idea that you had the other day that marriages don't deteriorate overnight you've got jane and jane is the most emotionally whole of all of the kids and she was formed in the most healthy part and happy part of their marriage her early years and you know, Mr. Bennett started to go cynical and so Elizabeth she's much better off than the other girls but she's cynical and then by the time the other girls come around Mr. Bennett's done. Yeah I mean I imagine because it says that when he married what is the phrase? It says she had that appearance of 
Let me just look that up. I will look it up for you. Here it is. Her father, captivated by youth and beauty and that appearance of good humor which youth and beauty generally give, had married a woman whose weak understanding and a liberal mind had very early in their marriage put an end to all real affection for her. Respect, esteem, and confidence had vanished forever, and all his views of domestic happiness were overthrown. Mm. That's an awesome sentence, first of all. <laughs> and all his th- views of domestic happiness were overthrown. overthrown. Yeah, you get the sense that he was, he, he liked books, he likes the country. He was a romantic man. Mm. He had this idea of what marriage could be, and it collapsed early because of the woman he married. And he married a pretty vivacious woman. Yeah. And probably they he had... He thought he was getting somebody... Clearly, he had a good sense of humor. And yeah. what he ended up actually getting was somebody who likes to laugh at silly things. Doesn't want to talk about his idiot. books. Silly Doesn't idiot. want to walk in his country. And yeah. he just... He got exhausted. There's no yeah. possibility of any of the intellectual exchange he had hoped to have, any of the shared sense of humor. It was crushed. And then what we see is... What, 20 years of the ruins of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can see how. I'm sure they had kids quick, and he was probably still trying with both Jane and Elizabeth, maybe even a little bit with Mary. I don't know. Um, Mary's just like a weird. Is Mary older than Lydia and Kitty? I can't remember. I thought. She I want to say she youngest. is. Yeah. Is she... Okay. Lydia's the youngest. Right. It yeah. goes Jane, Lizzie, Mary. Yeah, so Mary is the weird transitional character. Right. Yeah. She's yeah. both foolish and somber. Yeah. Right. And just she's. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Mary. Mary's hilarious. Mary's awesome. Mary is. She's she's a homeschool kid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just imagine every author. I I suppose when they when they're writing, they're either putting themselves or they're putting people they know into the characters mm-hmm. around them. That's all you have to draw from, right? Mm-hmm. And I just imagine uh, Austin putting making fun of her early years in Mary, making fun of herself, putting putting her uh, sort of moralizing yeah. self into into caricature and yeah. mocking. And then at the end, you have that really great paragraph about her. Um, Mary was the only daughter who remained at home. She was necessarily drawn from the pursuit of accomplishments by Mrs. Bennett's being quite unable to sit alone. <laughs> Mary was obliged to mix more with the world, but she could still moralize over every morning visit. <laughs> and as she was no longer mortified, this is, I, I found this line pretty telling. And as she was no longer mortified by comparisons between her sister's beauty and her own, it was suspected by her father that she submitted to that change without much reluctance. Mary's just or, classic middle child yeah. syndrome, really. I mean, she's, she's going to find something that she's good at, and it's going to be something really stupid because all the good things that people can be good at it or have already been taken. So <laughs> she's going to be the yeah. one that reads books that no one cares about and, and moralizes. <laughs> moralizes. <laughs> Defines uh, uh, virtue or whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Where did she do that? Yeah. Look that up here. And this is so they're talking about pride. And then she says, pride, observed Mary, who piqued herself upon the solidity of her reflections. is a very <laughs> is a very common failing, I believe. <laughs> By all that I have read, I am convinced that it is very common indeed. The human nature is particularly prone to it, and that there are very few of us who do not cherish a feeling of self-complacency on the score of some quality or other. Real or imaginary vanity and pride are different things, Go though on. the words are often used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves' vanity to what we would have others think of us. And then they just go right back to talking without even really paying attention to her. <laughs> just, 
Yeah, she's. I've, I guess we've all known <laughs> some Marys in our time. Yeah, just painful. People who try to talk, you just kind of look, and then right. hey, let's go back to talking. <laughs> Everyone else now. <laughs> well, there's also something about a kid that's trying to be more wise. You know, it's like you haven't lived long enough to have. Listen, if you're listening to this podcast today and you're 16 or 17, nobody cares what you think about anything. Okay, <laughs> can I just say if you're listening to the bookening today? I don't want to hear your opinions about Pride and Prejudice. About you have no idea what you're talking politics, about. Politics yeah. about, and uh, if you grew up in a smart, like homeschooled kind of <laughs> Christian home, especially unqualified. You're especially yeah. unqualified, <laughs> and that's the type. Once again, homeschoolers are wonderful. Thank you for endorsing the podcast. But uh, and so are good Christian families, and you'll be fine in the end. You right, you'll just be need fine. To but, get over yourself. Right, yeah, yeah. You, you'll find your. You'll find your. You, you need your buildings, Roman. <laughs> to happen. You do need your. Uh, so what about uh, Catherine? What Lady the, Catherine de Berg? No, not no, not Lady Catherine de Berg. Kitty. What what is the purpose of having her in the novel? She doesn't do a lot. Maybe maybe her purpose is to show to give us some evidence of real repentance in Mister Bennett, real change, real hope for the for the family. Maybe that's it. Because apart from being Lydia's companion, she's a silent participator in most scenes. All we see is that um, she follows Lydia's lead. What Lydia's interested in, Kitty's interested in. The way Lydia talks, Kitty will soon start to... If Lydia picks up something from somewhere else, Kitty's going to pick it up from somewhere else. She's impressionable. She's weak. And as soon as Lydia's removed and she's able to be under the influence of her sisters and what may be the repentance of her father, better attention from her father, she she improves and she becomes... Yeah, she's... She's almost an invisible character, but I don't think she's pointless. Uh, the invisible characters are really interesting to me. So um, the most invisible character in the book is uh, Lady Catherine de Berg's daughter. Yeah, that's she's who I was thinking of, yeah. But she's, she's great. I mean, yeah. the image of her just like languishing like a like an orchid in a green room you know as as all these things go along just tells you everything you need to know about who lady catherine is about yeah yeah and in so so she speaks but there's no dialogue ever for her and that has a really interesting effect on how you understand her it gives you that sense of the oppression of lady catherine de berg her as a mother mm-hmm. you know that austin has scenes where she does speak, but she will never give her lines. It's just exposition about it's what just she said. It's exposition yeah. about what she said. That's all. Or whatever. Yeah, something like that. It's just a really nice touch, I think, from yeah, a yeah. literary it's, standpoint. It tells you, Like you said, it tells you everything you need to know about Lady Catherine. And a lot to tell you then about Darcy, too, not having succumbed to Lady Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> because she was doing everything she could to make him succumb. She makes everyone succumb. Yeah. And a lot. And the only two people that we see who don't, who have the strength to not succumb, are Darcy and Elizabeth. And yeah, and actually, important. she's a nice foil to Mrs. Bennet because at least I don't think Mrs. Bennet is quite as monstrous as Lady Catherine. She's horrible in the sense. Well, she's, uh, she's unhinged. Yeah. She's untethered in just the same way that Mrs. Bennet is. She, the difference is she has power and she has strength and she has 
sharpness of mind. Yeah. And but she has no discipline on her at all. Most of my thoughts on Jane Austen come from this book that I should probably name drop, uh, which has a dumb title. It's like the the politically correct in no. Not the politically correct. The idiot's guide to <laughs> Yeah, it's like the idiot's guide to English literature. It's it's like some conservative it's written by a Catholic lady. The Politically Incorrect Guide to English and American Liter- Literature by Elizabeth Cantor. She's some Catholic lady that wrote a book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to English and American, and American Literature. But uh what she says about uh, Jane Austen, she's, she talks about how feminists have claimed Jane Austen as their own. But then she said the one thing that's consistent across the entire oeuvre of Jane Austen is that women spoil when there's no authority over them and men spoil by ab- abdicating authority. And if you look at this book, you have several examples of men that are spoiled through the abdication of authority. That would be Wickham. That would be Mr. Bennett. That would be all the bad men in this book, really. And all the mm-hmm. weak men are men that somehow abdicate their authority. And women like Lady Catherine de Bourgh or like Mrs. Bennett are women that have spoiled th- through... The absence of... The absence of any authority. So it's a very... That's anti-feminist kind of thing, according to Elizabeth Cantor of the Politically Incorrect Guide to English and American Literature. And that's good um, because her, I guess, counterpart, her villain, the Lex Luthor to Elizabeth Cantor, would be that Gubar lady we were talking about. Yes. And her point is that all the social restrictions and stuff prevent these women from becoming the modern free woman. And the opposite to that would be no. It's actually because well, if you think about Lady Catherine, for example, she has, no she has everything that she you could want. Yeah, you know, she doesn't have any restrictions on it's, her. It's because I, she had this good protection taken away from her. I was really struck um, by the couple of places where Lady Catherine's actions or manner were described as ill breeding. Well, to to say that this great lady who's so rich is ill bred, I said. It's a stab, yeah. It's a real burn. But she is. I mean, she's not being polite or good-natured in the way that an actual, true, gentlewoman should be, whatever class they come from. Yeah, Mrs. Gardner is a good example of of a lady. She's respectful. She's sweet. She's kind. Uh, let's talk about uh, another villain in the piece, maybe the biggest villain of the piece, Mr. Wickham. I just know so many Wickhams. Yep. <laughs> I don't know what else there, to say. There I don't know Wickhams. what to say about it. They're with... For one reason, it's very easy to be a Wickham. Yes. I mean, all you have to do is start deceiving people about who you are, <laughs> and you're a Wickham. <laughs> and I'm sure that... <laughs> it's not so easy for some people. Yeah. All I have to do is be incredibly handsome and charming. Right. And, uh, yeah. So obviously the three of us are like classic oh, yeah, we're, Wickham. We're all, classic Wickham. This is just a room full of Wickham. Right. Here. <laughs> 500% Wickham. 500% is the actual mathematical percentage of Wickham's in this room right now. Uh, yeah, I went to high school with Wickham's. Wickham is the number one guy that I can I can say, okay, yeah, Billy Bob Joe that I knew was Wickham and yep. Tony 
Filipini was like, I'm making up these names. <laughs> Tony Filipini. It's me, Tony Filipini. <laughs> I didn't get my rectorship. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've been a Wickham before, for sure. Um, mm. Guessing probably all of us have done Wickham-y things. You bet. But I mean, I can think of specific relationships with people, specific interactions with women that I've had uh, with uh, girls. And uh, so he is, I, I think of all the characters in the novel, maybe he's the one that to me is the most recognizable, seems the most realistic, seems the least like there's any kind of flight of fancy or jump of thought to get to he's just here's a guy that's just ripped from the the pages of your life my life yeah the thing that i always want to say at least to young women about wickham is that probably if you think that you found your darcy he's still just a wickham and you need to really know what you're about and trust the wisdom of of older people because we live in such a really gay, rom- uber-romanticized time. Everybody fancies themselves entering into this perfect windswept romance and everything's going to be beautiful and it's all manipulative. Mm-hmm. Well, and you need to remember that as, as a pe- person that's reading this book, it's fairly easy. I mean, I think the first time I read the book, I knew Wickham was going to be a bad guy, you know, because I've read books before. Yeah, if you understand plot. In real life, Wickham's don't look like Wickham. Wickham's look like Darcy. I mean, it really is what Elizabeth said. One had one was good, and one had all the appearance of yeah. being good. As if you, I'm sure all the young ladies, you know, you should you should remember that your Wickham really is going to look like a Darcy, and vice versa. He really is going to have the appearance of good to you. That's yeah. it. And he's not going to be like a sniveling. We were talking about who we would cast as Wickham in our in our fantasy movie version. We thought maybe Tom Hiddleston Loki from the from the, the Avengers. From the Avengers. But the problem with him is that we all know he's a sniveling bad guy. I mean, that's what he's that's what he's his stock and trade is right now. Uh, so that's who you tend to want to cast as Wickham. But actually, you should cast what I don't know, Brad Pitt. Well, I had always thought that. Uh... We've got an orchestra warming up <laughs> next to us. Sherlock Holmes is next door. <laughs> I I had always imagined him as uh, being played by Heath Ledger. Handsome, charming, but very disgusting beneath the surface, or at least capable of playing a very disgusting person beneath the surface. No, the reason I favored Hiddleston is because Hiddleston is a truly evil character often. And by often, I mean Loki. <laughs> <laughs> he's an evil character, but he's always just charming and every every and sympathetic. He's never not pitiable. Yeah, the first time I saw him, he played that captain who dies early in that Steven Spielberg movie about the horse, the war horse. <laughs> you saw that, huh? Was that War Horse? Was that what it was called? Yes, yeah, it was called War. Yeah. I never saw it because it was about a horse. And he was a he was a noble British captain or something, right? Well, the point is, whoever you get to play Wickham needs to be somebody that we as the audience are actually taken in by because Lizzie's not dumb. And Lizzie's taken in. Lizzie's taken in. And the thing with Wickham, too, is he's impulsive, and he probably believes quite a bit of what he says about himself. Yeah, I think he absolutely does. Yeah, when 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 he says at the end, you know, when they come for their visit, and he's he doesn't he's, he can't understand why Elizabeth isn't still friendly with him. Yeah, when he says, "Why can't we be friends, cousin?" or whatever it is he says, he is being a manipulative sob, but. I don't he's think start, he's fishing. You know, you get this. You never quite know 
how sharp Wickham really is. You know, you you see that scene and you can imagine it being straight and honest and you can, you know, believing his own lies. You can also imagine he's fishing. How much does she know? What does she really think? You, the scenes around the dinner table where he is, uh, what is, what does Austin say about him or Elizabeth through Austin think about him mm. that they're just unabashed there which is a bit of a surprise i i the reader would have expected him to be smart enough to at least realize that his wife and her mother were dumb yeah and and to have a, a bit of a downcast you know whipped puppy i can't believe i got myself into this here i am of. i'm stuck with this for the rest of my life yeah, i don't think he thinks far enough ahead about what he's done or what he's doing he lies on the spur of the moment and probably believes most of what he says, or at least a good portion of it, and just, you know, this is fitting for his character. Deceiving and self-deceived. Yeah. Yeah, so I, it's not that surprising that he would come back and just be completely oblivious. I guess the warning to the young man is that you might think you're a Darcy when you're actually a Wickham. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here, Here's the the passage. Wickham was not at all more distressed than herself, but his manners were always so pleasing that had his character and his marriage been exactly what they ought, his smiles and his easy address while he claimed their relationship would have delighted them all. Elizabeth had not before believed him quite equal to such assurance, but she sat down resolving within herself to draw no limits in future to the impudence of an impudent man. She blushed and Jane blushed, but the cheeks of the two who caused their confusion suffered no variation of color. Yeah. Oh, man, that's, a, that's another awesome sentence. <laughs> Next time I see someone doing something shameful, I'll tell them that their cheeks need to suffer variation of color. <laughs> Today's episode of The Book and Name was written and produced by me, <laughs> Nathan Alberson. It was performed by me, Nathan Alberson, and by Brandon Chastain, not me, and Jacob Menzel, also not me. But despite not being me, those guys get along just fine, and you can tune in next week for part three, part three of our discussion about Pride and Prejudice. And don't forget that coming up next month, we'll be reading one of my personal favorite books of all time, East of Eden by Johnny Steinbeck. 